I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. This week, Pope Francis not only announced his first group of cardinals-elect, the only European among them being Archbishop Nichols of Westminster. He also removed four cardinals from the Vatican Bank Commission after investigation, including former Secretary of State Cardinal Bertoni. And Vatican officials are set to face tough questions on the handling of sexual abuse by clergy when they attend a UN committee in Geneva. On January the 25th next, in Canterbury Cathedral, Mother Church of the 85 million member Worldwide Anglican Communion, worshippers will hear for the first time the voices of 16 girls between the ages of 12 and 16 at an historic Evensong service. Choir membership at Canterbury Cathedral had hitherto been an all-male preserve. Some weeks ago, former President Mary McAleese made headlines when she said, I don't like my church's attitude to gay people. Members of the Catholic Church are not the only ones grappling with the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And this week, Britain's leading body for Christian therapists instructed members to stop trying to turn gay patients straight using so-called conversion therapy. The Association of Christian Counselors said the practice should be stopped in the interests of public safety, but the move has prompted a furious response from its proponents. We're joined now from London by investigative journalist Patrick Strudwick, who describes himself as a happy out gay man who went undercover to experience this type of therapy for himself. Patrick, you're welcome to the Godslot. Can you explain to our listeners what conversion therapy is? Yes, I mean, it is a, it is a form of talking therapy. Um, so there's no um, pain used, which used to be administered um, by those seeking to cure gay people in the past. Um, instead, um, counsellors or therapists sit for many sessions with um, a gay person who is uh, unhappy about being gay uh, and seeks to convert them to heterosexuality through Uh, therapy and prayer. Okay, and you say that they used prayer, so are you a person of faith or would you describe yourself as an atheist? My uh, father's family were Catholic and my mother's were Protestant and uh, I am now an atheist. Okay, so now tell us what happened. Well, um, I met both a psychiatrist who uh, worked in Northern Ireland and uh, a psychotherapist who worked near London at a conference for conversion therapy and I asked them both individually and separately to treat me for my homosexuality. Though their techniques differed uh, a little bit, there was with both of them two paths that they went down. Uh, The first path is ludicrous and the second path is dangerous. So the first path they go down is to give you practical advice as to how to be straight or how not to be gay, as it were. So these involve things which they think will kind of beef up your machismo or your masculinity. That might be, for example, taking up rugby. And the idea being that, you know, you're around sort of big, burly men and that will somehow rub off on you. Uh, I think any gay person listening will probably laugh at the idea that being around rugby players would make them feel less gay. 
Um, and the psychiatrist, for example, advised me to do very bizarre things like standing in front of a mirror, naked, touching myself and affirming my masculinity to myself. It's very strange, it's ludicrous and laughable, frankly. The other approach they take, the other path, if you will, is to delve into your childhood and find what went wrong, what damaged you to make you gay. They think that homosexuality is a, 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 a disorder, a disease. They think it's pathological. And they think that it is therefore caused by something that harmed you in your childhood. That might be uh, bullying. That might be an overbearing mother. It might be a distant father. It might be, as was the case with the psychotherapist who treated me, an assumption that I was sexually abused. When she asked me if I had been sexually abused and I said no, she said, I think it will be there. It was at that moment that I realized how dangerous this kind of treatment is and what the possible ramifications could have been had I not been a journalist. Well, now you are a journalist and the, the groups offering this type of therapy will say that they only offer it to those who want it. So where's the harm there? Many patients and clients come to their mental health practitioner with goals that are either unrealistic or dangerous. Uh, people with eating disorders, for example, might want to be five stone. That does not mean that the person uh, looking after them should collude with them with that. And so it is that with conversion therapy, just because someone uh, wants it does not justify offering it because we know it causes harm. And what about the people who have undergone such therapy and say that they have been cured of same-sex attraction? Well, I've met an awful lot of those people and... It is very clear to me that they are in enormous amounts of denial, and it's tragic. And they will say to you, I am now straight. And anyone with any ounce of of gaydar, if you will, would know for sure that they are lying to themselves and therefore lying to others. And you don't have to just take my word for that. There are dozens of testimonies all over the internet from former leaders of the gay conversion therapy movement who eventually realized the errors of their ways and who admitted that they made a terrible mistake and caused terrible harm to vulnerable people. Well, now, as we said at the beginning this week, the Association of Christian Counselors uh, has come out against the conversion therapy. What are they saying about it now? They have given it some considerable thought and they wrote a statement which they sent to all its members uh, and then later published on their website explaining that not only do we know that it causes harm but that the very concept of conversion therapy um, is anti-therapy. The explanation they give for that is very interesting. The idea of any kind of therapy is not to begin with with an idea of exactly what sort of outcome you would like, but instead to explore what is happening, how you why you are feeling the way you are feeling. And equally, the idea of therapy is not for a therapist to impose their values on their client, but merely to allow their client to become who they really are. Their, their thesis is, and I agree with this, 
conversion therapy isn't therapy at all. It's just the opposite of therapy. It works in the opposite way to therapy and it doesn't work. Yes, but most Christian churches teach that homosexuality is at best immoral, at worst intrinsically disordered. If a believing Christian finds that he or she has a same-sex attraction, considers that to be against the tenets of their faith and wishes to change, don't they have the right to seek whatever help there is? Lots of religious leaders say lots of dangerous, damaging things all the time. Of course, religious leaders are free to speak as they will. What I am saying is that people that hold professional positions, such as doctors or psychiatrists or psychotherapists, should not be offering a treatment which the vast majority of their colleagues in the profession know doesn't work and causes harm. In the same way, um, you know, there have been cases recently in Britain of religious leaders telling their congregation that they do not need to take drugs, medication for HIV, that merely prayer will be sufficient. And some of those people have died as a result. Now, there's not a lot we can do about that, really. What we can do is stop people in medical positions, be it physical or mental health, from advocating treatments which we know uh, damage people and hurt people. And, and so it is in Britain, which is a bill uh, reaching Parliament for its second reading later this month that seeks to regulate psychotherapy. Yeah, and, I was just going counseling. to ask you about that. That's a Labour MP. And what is he trying to achieve with his bill? What he would like is for the word counsellor or psychotherapist to become a protected title. At the moment, anyone in Britain can call themselves a therapist or a counsellor without any qualifications, without any experience and without any affiliation to any organisation or professional body. It's an absolute free-for-all for psychotherapists and counsellors at the moment. And so what Garrett Davis MP is trying to do is to bring counsellors and psychotherapists in line with other health professionals, all of whom are working with either ill or vulnerable people, so that the public is protected. It's really that simple. And that, and that there is a recourse if something goes wrong. OK, Patrick Strudwick, thank you very much. The line's starting to break up there. Thank you for joining us on The God Slot this evening. Thank you. Cozy, whose birth name is Jill Warner, is a teacher and author who offers a simple invitation to stop and discover the freedom that you are. She's a graduate of Virginia Technical College and had a successful career, but was surprised that her financial success offered no lasting happiness or fulfilment, and her spiritual search began in 1996. She's a frequent visitor to Ireland, and on a recent visit, she spoke to Jerry McArdle about her path to spiritual enlightenment. You know, I was raised Christian and had left Christianity by that time because I was in my mid-30s, very successful in my career and didn't get anything from Christianity. It, it seemed archaic and you would kind of go to church and feel and be left empty. A good friend of mine invited me to what was called the Disco Church in San Francisco and it was Tell a me very, about that. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, a very interesting church in that they started the, the service with disco music. So people actually danced before the, the service. And they had a workshop. 
And I took the workshop because I was new to the area. I didn't have any friends. I'd been recently transferred to the West Coast from the East Coast. And I took it mainly to meet some people. And it changed my life. So I had a very profound, mystical experience of Christ, uh, which actually ultimately ended up leading me all around the world, including Jerusalem. And then my spiritual seeking really took a, a more serious deepening. So I started to spend time with the Dalai Lama because it uh, it actually created more questions than answers. And I was seeking those answers. How do you become enlightened? How do you end your suffering? What does this mean, this spiritual experience of Christ? And, well, what, what and, did it mean? Just, 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 just tell me that. What did it mean? And when you talk about Christ, who are you talking about? Are you talking about Jesus of Nazareth? Are you talking about a divinity? Are you talking about a God figure? I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And I was in a deep meditation, and he appeared and asked me to go to Jerusalem. And that's really what led me to go to the Holy Lands. And when I say mystical experience of Christ, what it meant was he was what I was hearing in these visions and what I was seeing and what I was feeling was actually the truth of my own being. But after the, the vision would disappear, you were kind of left with, well, what was that all about? What does that mean? And I really f- was drawn to the Tibetan Buddhism because of the silence, because they have a teaching that was similar to my mystical experience of Christ. And the reason I say it's a mystical experience of Christ is it's because it it you know kind of came out of the blue. I, at that time, I didn't know anything about the Bible other than a childhood understanding. And that took me to this deeper place of asking questions about why did this happen? What does it mean? Um, What does it mean to be enlightened? You know, part of the message of Christ was to go into your heart. But if you go into your heart, there was nothing there. So that was confusing. I'm just wondering, your experience of Christianity and your direct personal encounter with Jesus Mm. and then the Eastern spirituality, do they Mm. connect? Yes, they connect because they're pointing to the same thing. You know, they're pointing, Christ was pointing to the sacred heart. And, well, what is the sacred heart? It's the living fire, the energy, the presence in your own heart, the life force. Christ said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, you are the light of the world. And so if you think of the nature of light, well, where does one light end and the other begin? So a lot of what Christ was teaching to the disciples, and and this is right in the Bible. You can go right to the King James Version of the Bible. You don't have to go to the Gnostic documents or the Gnostic Gospels. It's all there. You know, where was he pointing? What was he saying? What was he really talking about? So what was he really talking about? He was talking about the eternal presence, the peace that you are. So suffering comes from our natural tendency to focus on our thoughts and our feelings and our circumstances and our past and our potential future. And it's that focus on the thoughts, feelings, and images that are in our mind that causes suffering. So, And suffering is the pain that we ex- all experience in life, but we extend our pain over time by replaying our thoughts and giving our attention to that. So what I teach is the, the cessation of that. It's stopping to look where the thoughts come from. Where does the mind itself originate? Where is, you know, this this presence inside of us? Where does it come from? What is it? And it's this uh, opening to discover that actually has the power to stop the mind. And it's in the Bible. It's all there, but it tends to be overlooked. 
Um, in fact, I wrote a book at one point called The Secret Teaching of Jesus Christ, which really takes a deep look at um, what he said and what this means in the context of this living presence, which is always at peace and always here. It was here before we were even born, and it will be here when we're dead. So are you coming from the, the same place, for example, that Gandhi was coming from when he said that he admired Jesus very much, didn't like Christians all that much? <laughs> yeah. so do, do, do you think yeah. that, that the mainstream Christian churches have got it wrong? No, I don't think they have it wrong, but I think their focus has gotten too far away from the message of Christ. And so there's this almost, uh, and I saw this a lot in, in the United States, there's almost a sanctioned prejudice and uh, almost a mean-spiritedness that's gotten kind of seeped into Christianity. But a true Christian that really has studied Christ um, really embodies the peace of Christ, and I think St. Francis is a great example of that. He was just, he really had a profound mystical experience of Christ, but he also heard Christ on a profoundly deep level and, you know, was definitely honored as a saint. But he lived that life. He exuded the peace of Christ because he understood him. And he actually looked where Christ was pointing. And there's, it's a big difference than the traditional Christian approach, which gets caught in dogmatic ideas of Christ. And it's the dogma and the rules and the structure that leaves you away from the simplicity and love that Christ is. Or it can lead you away from it. So I'm not really against Christianity, but I am against, I guess, what I would say, call dogmatic Christianity. Now, you are the author of, of, of uh, quite a few books. Uh, you mentioned there The Secret Teaching of Jesus Christ and mm. got there, in fact, before I did, I was going to ask you about it. Yeah. Uh, when the Search for Enlightenment Stops and uh, The Heart of Romana. Um, but you've got some new books coming up? Yeah, there's a couple of books. Uh, one is a very short book. It's kind of a more of an introduction to the teaching that I offer, and it's called Organic Awakening, A Simple Guide to Living a Happy and Free Life. And that one, that one and this other one called The Clear Way, which is really more of a story of my life and the realizations that I had along the way, and that's called The Clear Way. And they're probably going to be out, you know, our original goal was this fall, but uh, it could very well be that they're not out, they're not released fully until next spring. Does, just as a matter of interest, does mm-hmm. diet play a part in this kind of spirituality? Balance in your diet is very important because if you're not feeding and taking care of your body, it's very hard to inquire. So if you're sick or ill or have cancer, inquiry can be very difficult. Not impossible, but it's more challenging if you haven't taken care of your physical body. So I would say that my my view of it is more holistic, including all these different aspects. Certainly GMOs are definitely not good. Um, genetically engineered uh, food is not a good idea. It affects the entire ecological food chain. And, you know, we could get into esoteric discussion about that. But in terms of the hu- human body, we all know that there's basic needs that the body has. And so bringing that into balance certainly supports your spiritual growth. So it would be the old maxim, really, of the, the healthy mind and the healthy body. Yes, okay. yes. Cozy talking to Jerry McArdle. She'll be running retreats in Ireland later this year. And for further information about her, her books and her schedule, log on to her website, www.cozy.co. That's K-O-S-I, so www.cozy.co. 
cosy. A gathering of parish pastoral councils from the deaneries of Finglas, Fingal North and Maynooth will take place in the Lucan Spa Hotel tomorrow week, that's January the 25th. To tell us a little about this, we're joined by Communications Officer Pat Quinn and by Angela Caulfield of River Valley Parish in Swords. What is a parish pastoral council? The parish team usually consists of the priest, a parish sister, possibly a deacon and now, of course, pastoral workers. And the parish nominates a group of people to work with the parish team for the good of the parish, to identify the needs, to see what we can do, to encourage and enable the parishioners to get a plan going and to support them generally in that work. That we can all, I suppose, experience the gospel values in our daily lives to know that God is there with us, encouraging us and that together we can work better in this area. Now, as with many other things since Pope Francis has been elected, there's a renewed emphasis on involvement in the church and everyone's involvement. Does this apply to the pastoral council or is this something that has been going on for a long time, Pat? I suppose when you look back years ago, people were led by priests. And the funny thing is there are people in pastoral councils who have never been involved in parish work, which is a good thing to have because most people say, ah, there's a click going on in the parish and the same few. But uh, what I've noticed, there are people coming in, which is fantastic. And we support the other groups that are within the parish and they really, really appreciate that. And Angela, are you there as a support for priests as well? Maybe say priests who are changing from one parish to the next? Yes, that is a big issue, Eileen, because... The parish is there, the people are there, but the priests will come. And unfortunately now we don't have enough priests for each parish to have their own priest. And when a new priest comes in, it is our duty and responsibility really to settle them into the community, to get to know the various groups that are active in the community. Because there are so many groups in all parish pastoral councils hidden, working away. And somebody coming in needs to be introduced and to get to know and become familiar with what's going on. Most of the people on the pastoral council are volunteers and that's one of the reasons why we have this gathering coming up that's so important because we all come with our gifts and our skills and we do what we can, bring our knowledge and experience but we need a common ground, a shared experience where we all understand what we're supposed to do as the parish pastoral council and then individually we need training in the areas where we need a bit of help. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity and I'd really encourage all our pastoral council members to come along and enjoy the day. Okay, so Pat, it's not about the day-to-day running of a parish, it's about more than that to tell us what these workshops will involve on Saturday. The first workshop is based about pastoral councils and the prayer in it. The second workshop is to do with a guy coming along from a community development organisation who talk about pastoral councils in community. So people were expecting anything around about 300 people. So people have a choice to go to either workshop and when they get back to their own meetings, they will be able to relate what they heard and what they can do in, in the coming months, in the, the coming years uh, in their pastoral councils. And I was just going to say too, with a pastoral council, when you have a new person coming into a parish our people, they're totally lost. They're not sure what's going on, uh, particularly from a church point of view. And this is where a pastoral council can be very, very helpful because you know yourself when you come into an estate and you know nobody. And that's where we come in and encourage people. We'd often give out uh, mass times, leaflets and what's happening in the parish, the various groups that they can join. You know, so we're not telling them to join, but the opportunity is there from this leaflet that we will give out. So where's the primary focus, Angela? Is it liturgy and prayer? 
These are part of the focus, but like Pope Francis says now to us, we're to walk the journey, we're to help to build up the church. And by that, he's not talking about the physical structure, he's talking about the people of God and about professing Jesus, because we do all these things anyway. But when we have Jesus as our guide, we have another dimension in the work we do. There are many people in this country so generous with volunteering their time. But being related in some way to a group structure in a parish like this, with a particular mission, with support and guidance, there's a wonderful personal joy and calm that comes to people. And I would just love people to experience that in their own lives. Angela Caulfield and Pat Quinn, thank you both very much. That gathering taking place in the Spa Hotel in Lucan tomorrow week, January the 25th. On Sunday morning, RTE One Television and RTE Radio One Extra will mark the start of the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity with a shared ceremony in which the Reverend Kieran Young Wimberley leads a multi-denominational group of musicians in a service based on Celtic psalms, her own settings of biblical psalms to traditional Irish tunes. And during this special week, Archbishop Charles Brown, the Papal Nuncio, will preach at St Anne's Cathedral in Belfast and St Patrick. Church of Ireland Cathedral in Armagh. Our phone number is 01208 Our email address is godslot at rte.ie and the postal address is the godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. We'll be back at the same time next Friday evening. Good evening. Good evening.